Welcome everyone to Finance Podcast Week and this special live stream panel, Crypto Craze, with Peter McCormick of What Bitcoin Did, Ash Bennington of the Ground Floor Consensus Podcast and Real Vision, and Guy Swan of Bitcoin Audible. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive pre-released episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free, and you can replay any of the panels on the Finance Podcast Week podcast channel. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We are a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts can constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now we'll hand it off to our host of this live stream panel, Peter McCormick of the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Take it away. Thank you, and thank you for your disclosures. Uh, I will kick this off by saying anyone listening should go and buy as much Bitcoin as they can. Right, good to see you, Ash, or hear from you. Good to hear from you, uh, Guy. Uh, before we start, anyone listening, I will just say uh, Guy Swan has the best voice in Bitcoin. Go and listen to anything he narrates. Um, he has a way of really bringing you into, whether it's a story or an article or a full book, he has a re- real uh, talent for drawing you in. So um, a good starting point would be Gigi's 21 Lessons, which I've listened to recently. Also, definitely go and check out Real Vision's work because Ash is a master interviewing people. Okay, it's the crypto craze. I guess we're being joined by people who may have heard of or be slightly exposed to Bitcoin, but maybe not as experts we used to, uh, as the audience we used to talk to. What do you think? Do you think that's a fair, Ash, do you think that's a fair guy? I would assume so. You mean as far as the audience here, like in finance? Probably. Like like I I imagine Bitcoin is one of an industry from that like perspective and they're coming in and like obviously, um, you you know, kind of the general perception is that Bitcoin is kind of like the foundation of all of this, which I mean, I would certainly agree with the sentiment. Um, But I, I, I feel the the real nit and gritty and the kind of economics and game theory of a lot of this is just lost. It's usually just seen as like another tool in the bucket of finance. And here's a new gadget to go play with. Well, we, we can deal with that. Uh, Alex not being with us. <laughs> oh, and thank might, you. Might be thank a slight you for bet. the kind words, by the way, that's, it's much appreciated. Well, I've had you on my walks around Bedford park recently when I was listening to 21 lessons, but, uh, not having Alex might be a benefit because we might have argued over one specific issue. It depends on what Ash's position is going to be on this. But uh, my starting point when it's a crypto conversation is is to explain that Bitcoin is the foundation, the house and the roof and everything else you need to ignore. Uh, I think you would be in agreement with me on that particular topic, topic guy. What about yourself, Ash? Because uh, if you are in agreement, this entire conversation is going to be about Bitcoin. 
If not, then we might have to tap into the altcoin stuff a little well, bit. Well, so I'm a really weird person in crypto in this sense. I am, uh, my joke is aggressively neutral. I'm basically here to cover the space. And, and you know, first and foremost, I consider myself to be a, an interviewer and a reporter. So I tend not to take very strong positions uh, in a space where people tend to take very strong positions. Um, but my feeling about, about Bitcoin has always been that Bitcoin is absolutely the foundation uh, of everything. Um, and that, you know, look, I'm, I'm a traditional finance reporter um, by training. And um, when you look at the, just look at the, the market cap numbers, which probably understate uh, the market capitalization of, of Bitcoin, it's very clear that, that Bitcoin is, uh, is the basis for everything that's happening. Um, that said, I, I find the other technologies to be really fascinating as well. Um, but, um, but I'm happy to just talk about. Right. That's good. Are you happy to just talk about uh, Bitcoin guy? Yeah, sure. That's all I do. <laughs> right. So, so guy, you, you do the eloquent version and I'll do my version afterwards, but I think some people will be thinking, well, this is about the crypto craze. Why aren't you telling me about cryptocurrencies? Why are you going to focus entirely on Bitcoin? Do you want to tell them? Uh, yeah. So, um, probably the. The kind of fundamental idea is that this is a it's a protocol. A lot of people have what I consider a a kind of more shallow misunderstanding view of uh, what is likely to unfold in this space, um, thinking that these things are products and that they are these the surface layer things that we're going to play with on top of the internet, and everybody's picking which one is their favorite. Um, and it's more akin, it, it is Bitcoin itself, like money is a communication medium and the consolidation tendencies on a communication medium, the, the tendency to centralize on one dominant medium is incredibly powerful. It is the very basis studying that history of protocols and languages and, um, uh, like like the the fundamental communication layers of society is is how we really know everything that we do know, which is pretty vague, honestly, about network effects. It is exactly that phenomenon that like we look back and it's like, why do these things always tend toward one? Um, and uh, there's a couple of great pieces I've read on the show that I think really break down this idea. But the fundamental idea is that you can't have a market without a basis for communication. And money is a basis for communication of value. So rather than, so whereas a good example is that everybody can drive their own car, right? Is that I can have a big car, somebody else can have a small car, maybe you got a motorcycle, maybe we're driving Mack trucks or buses. Like there's a whole bunch of competition, there's a huge market, and there's a great variety with things that we drive on the road. Yet the rules of the road are the same no matter what you're driving. The protocol is the rules of the road. The market is what we drive in, what color we want, how big we want it, what we use it for. And uh, in that same way, in kind of the same way that we don't pick which of our favorite internets to log into, I don't think we will pick which one of our favorite monies we want to use. In the absence of friction, in the absence of some sort of artificial barrier, the very reason it is more economically efficient to have one money versus a bunch of monies is the same reason it's better to have money in the first place as opposed to barter. And at the end of the day, there's plenty of really interesting technology happening in Ethereum and 
like wallet software and you know hardware wallets and all sorts of cool stuff being built. But I think the ultimate thing that will be their downfall is they're trying to have a floating independent currency to support these projects. Um, and at the end of the day, like we have one internet, I think we're going to have one dominant money. We're gonna have a communication medium with which we build a market and economy on top of. Uh, I just think the, the process of building that out, the maturation process is on a 20 year, 30 year timeline. So it's just gonna take a very long time to kind of sort out the, the signal from As eloquent as ever. Uh, my view is slightly different. I'll have mine and then I'll pass over to Ash. Uh, I try to make it really simple for people to understand, especially with this conversation, it's Finance Podcast Week. So I imagine there's people here who are interested in different areas of finance and investing. And perhaps they've heard of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin and they're thinking it's a time to invest. So there's two types of people who buy Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. There's investors and traders. Um, if you if you're looking to buy over a short period of time and maximize your returns, you're essentially a trader. And therefore, you're going up against all the other traders. Uh, and we know within crypto, about 95% of people lose money. So you're going to try and be in that 5%. So you're going to have to learn your edge and what that edge is. And you're probably going to fail. Therefore, everything I imagine will, over the long enough time frame, will trend towards zero versus Bitcoin. Therefore, as an investor, I just buy Bitcoin. So that's my simple view. Um, do you want to add anything to this, Ash? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm definitely less of an advocate and more of a reporter. Um, so I tend to look back and just look at the data. And the extraordinary thing about Bitcoin uh, is that we see something that we've never seen before uh, in human history, which is a distributed, I think, I think for, for, I would just say, I think guys' point was really a good one about this notion that it is, uh, that is, a, I mean, it's, a, it's really a sort of a, a very complex phenomenon because it is a, a network. Um, it is a protocol and it is an asset. Um, and we've never seen an asset before in human history um, where there is no centralized control, uh, where it is driven by an open protocol, um, where it is a series of published standards uh, that interact the same way no matter who you are, um, and where in a very short period of time, uh, the asset went from zero to over a trillion dollars. That's extraordinary. So if you're a finance reporter um, and you see something like that, uh, you really take notice very quickly uh, and you think about what is it, what are the special properties that this has uh, that cause this particular asset uh, protocol and network to do something that nothing before in human history has ever done. Uh, and in fact, no other uh, protocol, Ethereum being second, uh, has reached that level of market capitalization. It's about uh, 20% of it. So there's this huge gap between the number one in the space uh, and the number two in the space, whatever your ideology uh, about it is, the data speak for themselves. Uh, Bitcoin is something quite extraordinary on the basis of what we can see from the data alone. Okay, so Guy, some of these people are gonna be listening thinking, okay, this is kind of interesting. Um, I'm interested in taking a look at it, but they're gonna be scared off by the unit bias. Yeah, the price of Bitcoin now, trend, it's around $55,000. People are gonna be looking at it going, it's pretty expensive now, perhaps I'm too late. Do you wanna, do you wanna refute that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, the That's the kind of the funny thing is that particularly during like the ICO craze and the, the blockchain days between 2016 and 17 era um, was that a lot of uh, just random token printing and the illusion that we were going to create. It felt so much like the dot-com bubble 
you know, like people were just, they could stick up a website for a $50 Fiverr charge. And uh, as long as they've got those decentralized animated graphics and they copy and paste Bitcoin and, you know, change just a few characteristics to make it um, uh, awesome coin or whatever the heck it was, uh, is that they could just sell and they could just make millions and millions of dollars. And one of the things that they utilized was the unit bias was we're going to, you know, Bitcoin is a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars or whatever it was as you know we were on the run uh back in 2017 and then you sell this new unit it's like a penny and you say oh it's going to go to a thousand dollars um like it gives the illusion that oh it has that potential it actually has that potential whereas the the number of units is really just kind of an arbitrary thing and bitcoin itself is made up of sats is made up of satoshis its smallest unit which is one one hundred millionth of a bitcoin what you're buying is a share of the economy that adopts bitcoin as a monetary unit and you might be able to get like a penny of some random altcoin but who knows what share of what economy that may never even manifest at all you're actually getting it looks cheaper but it's cheaper in the same way that grains of sand are cheaper than pounds of gold. Like they're just not the same thing. And like you can buy a penny of Bitcoin. Like I, I mean, I just, one of the things that people tell me, like when somebody's like, oh, Bitcoin fees are super high is I just kind of get into a habit of not even like really responding to them on Twitter. I'll just go on strike an app that runs over lightning and I'll just buy like a bucks worth, of, like a dollar worth of Bitcoin. And send it to myself. Um, and like it just they'll still argue with me and say that, oh, that that's not real or something, but I can do that. Like I can buy as little amount of Bitcoin as I want. Um, and uh, just like you can break a dollar into pennies, you can break a Bitcoin into one hundred millionths of it. Like you can essentially just infinitely divide it into smaller and smaller units. Nobody has to buy fifty-five thousand dollars worth to get into Bitcoin for the same reason you don't have to buy like a hundred dollar bill, quote unquote, to get into into dollars. Like it's money. You can have it in any amount that you want. But Guy, just to add to that, it is still looking quite expensive because if people have followed the trajectory of Bitcoin for the last eight years, they've heard it in the news when it's reached $1,200 and seen it crash and They've had it when it's reached $20,000 and they've seen it crash and they've seen it now $50,000. Like, what is the argument that this price, it can keep appreciating in price? And like, how far can it go? Well, the total addressable market for money is basically the largest total addressable market that exists inside of an economy. Like, it's it's the communication medium for value in that economy. So it's essentially, at, at the end of its maturation phase it's one-to-one -one with roughly the value that's tradable in that economy um like that that is what that's what a money does in uh in that context so like the the fact that there are 21 million quote-unquote bitcoin at at that level it's just that one twenty-one millionth of the current size of the economy is uh uh, is is simply worth fifty five thousand dollars according to the current market uh, market rate, 
But to think that that economy can only stop at a trillion dollars is, you know, the the, the addressable market for inter- for the for the internet of value is that everyone uses it for the base layer of communication for communicating value on the internet. So is Bitcoin as ubiquitous as the internet? No, not even close. Like it's barely, it's really barely gotten started. Again, I see this as like a 20, 30 year process that we're moving to a new monetary standard. That's the potential here. And that doesn't stop at a trillion dollars, like even close. That stops when it becomes the base layer of communicating money in the digital sphere. Um, just like, you know, if uh, when the Internet was taking over analog phone infrastructure, uh, when like a couple of the back end of AT&T servers went to the Internet, that was just that was just the beginning of realizing that the Internet was about to dominate all communication. But it wasn't even close to the beginning of what the Internet was actually possible to do when Bitcoin is the denominated standard. Like, there's going to be there's going to be an ocean of financial instruments and like base uh, like native interest rates, which we're already developing right now. That's kind of the most bullish thing for me in the last year. Um, futures contracts like, like we're going to build a financial system on top of this thing that is parallel to what we think of as the legacy financial system. And we just got started. We literally just like the door just opened to make people realize that this is even a possibility. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I I really strongly agree with, with guy about is the, how early it is, uh, in the space. And, you know, one of the challenges with anything that's new, uh, is that as human beings, what we tend to do is we tend to extend from things that we know to things that we don't, we use metaphors. Um, so people often think, uh, about Bitcoin uh, and other crypto assets as stocks, um, and um, you know that really has less to do with the with the asset itself and the mental models that we have, uh, particularly people who have been in the investment space. So it is it is really an interesting question, and and you know I guess for me the question that we have yet to see the answer to, and I, and I mean that literally in the most objective way, it's just it hasn't shaken out yet. Um, is you know is Bitcoin something? Um, that is like a stock where there are there are competitors, or is it something that's like a currency? Uh, no one would think, uh, for example, uh, you know, to say that uh, I'm going to create my own currency. We have U.S. dollars. This would be the the dominant paradigm, say, 15 years ago, prior to the Bitcoin white paper. And so, it's really an interesting and and very much open question to me about what the what the true metaphor for it is. Now, I think Guy is very eloquent in expressing that view uh, about Bitcoin, um, and he may well be correct. Um, but I think that the most honest and objective thing that we can say is we don't yet have the answer to that question just because the future is always. But Ash, this is going to be quite a leap for some people listening. Yeah, they've probably heard about Bitcoin. They've seen all the news. They've heard about the price. They've maybe heard about hospital computer systems being closed down and hackers requesting Bitcoin. Yet we're here, we're talking about a fundamental shift in the base monetary system the base monetary layer for the whole world that's quite a leap for 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 some people so do you want to do you want to perhaps explain that and what a bitcoin standard actually means and the potential paradigm we're going to live through well yeah it's it's a it's a great question so so what this what this is really about for people who you know um have have not spent their time uh, covering macroeconomics uh, or being involved in that space you know money supply 
uh, is controlled by nation states or in the case of uh, the European Union by a supranational organization that is made up uh, of nation states as represented by central banks. Um, and, and what Bitcoin uh, has the promise of doing uh, is effectively disaggregating the governance layer, the, the sort of um, governance layer in the sense of nation states uh, from, the, from the monetary base and the money supply. This is something that's a, um, an absolutely massive shift. I'm, you know, I, I actually have some skepticism about whether it can, it can happen um, because central banks and nation states uh, generally do not uh, give up the power of the printing press easily. Um, and, I'll just, and I'll just make the, uh, and, uh, the argument in favor, obviously, which is you know, Bitcoin, uh, the ability to have people control value for themselves is one of the most powerful concepts that I've ever heard, which is why you know, I spend uh, 10 or 12 hours a day in the digital asset space. I think it's absolutely fascinating. The flip side uh, is that macroeconomists will say um, that, that the ability for central banks to have influence over the money supply is something that has been incredibly positive, uh, especially for, um, for, the, for the developed world uh, since, uh, since, the, since the Bretton Woods standard was put in place. Um, you know, historically, um, we've gone through a series of different monetary regimes uh, on, in, in the United States. Milton Friedman has written about it uh, most eloquently and famously. Um, and, and the reality is that the data suggest quite strongly uh, that during the period which the United States was in a gold standard, um, there were more frequent and more violent recessions. So the question of how we can get to a, uh, a, a global system based on a Bitcoin standard uh, in an international sense, uh, where economies have goods and services denominated in, in Bitcoin rather than in fiat, uh, is, is, is very, much a, very much an open question. And, and I would say, you know, the one thing that I, I feel reasonably confident saying in a space that is totally open and unknown uh, is that the journey ahead is going to be an interesting one and I think also a very long Did you want to add anything to that guy? Because I've got some more questions before that. Uh, yeah. Um, so, like in the context of like shifting to a you know, new denomination and the idea of this becoming a new reserve asset, um, you know, in the context, like, obviously, central banks do not want to, central banks and governments um, very much hold tightly to the power to issue money. It's been, it's been the case for thousands of years. It's always coincided with the authority of said civilization is their eventual rule over what the money is. Um, and that's because it's one of the greatest powers that can be taken. Like the money is the accounting system for who is owed value in society and who has produced it in the past. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is that it is basically a collective accounting tool is that if I have like a million dollars in savings and I, you know, make sandwiches for a living or whatever, and we'll say I have a, like a dollar profit for every sandwich that I have that I make. Well, if I have a million dollars in savings, it means that I've produced a million sandwiches for other people in the economy and I've asked for nothing in return yet. I have added to the pool of economic resources and I've taken nothing out of it. All I have is a million quote unquote promises that someone else will return the favor in the future and that that promise is not supposed to be diluted because if I hold anything else in place of it, like 
chickens or um, like, a, you know, anything, a house, a car, all of those things deteriorate in value. Whereas a, a unit, a, a portion of the economic output that I have given into the economy shouldn't be devalued. So everybody will naturally want to hold the thing in which the promise is most securely given. And that's why I think the obviously the government doesn't want to give up that power because what they have is the power to remove favors and productivity and goods from the economic pool without ever giving anything back. They can just write promises on a piece of paper and say, I have made these things in the economy, but it's a lie, right? Like I actually traded for my unit. Someone else stood on the other side of it and said, yes, this trade is valuable and worth it to me. Whereas somebody who prints money is saying somebody else did that, but it's not true. They just wrote it down. Um, and uh, so, of course, they don't want to lose that power. It is the power to consume everything from the economy and never give anything back. You know, it's the one guy in the neighborhood who, who actually has money growing on trees. Of course, they want to own the tree. Nobody else gets to grow the tree and they don't ever want to lose the tree. The tree is extremely useful for them um, at everyone else's expense. But that is explicitly why it's never worked before. Why there has never been an independent money is because if it's centralized, if it's easy to confiscate, if it's easy to censor, um, then the government will just go snag it and make sure they have that power for themselves. And this is why, you know, the Liberty dollar and so many of the precursors to Bitcoin, you know, cypherpunks have been trying to solve this problem for 30 years before Bitcoin actually came about. Um, and it's been a long time dream of actually having a, a money that is chosen by the market rather than a money that is forced on the market. Uh, and Bitcoin survives today, I think, explicitly because it is such a difficult proposition to fight the thing. It is the BitTorrent of money. Like they may hate it in so many different ways. And that's why I think Bitcoin is, um, has such potential is because there is no like clearly explicit way to shut it off or to really break it. Like there's a lot of ways to make it like annoy it to slow things down or to cause like a big headache or maybe reverse transactions for a few hours. But those are very different problems from just having a master key to undo any history or ownership or anything in the legacy financial system that basically the central banks and the governments have. It doesn't cost them anything. So I, I think it's I think Bitcoin's potential to actually become that denomination is really just a measure of does or a question of does Bitcoin survive when the adversaries realize uh, just how much value could be uh, utilized or soaked up into this thing? I think all Bitcoin has to do is to actually survive and the economics play out and Bitcoin becomes the dominant money. Um, and monetary history shows that when a hard money and a, a soft, a weak money clash, you play that out long enough and the hard money just drives the other one into extinction unless it can be co-opted. And that's, that's basically the question. Can, can I pick up on that? So, yeah, please do. So, so one of the things that's, that's, that's so fascinating, you know, here in the, in the post, uh, the post uh, great financial crisis era uh, that we've seen. And I think this speaks precisely to, uh, to Brad's, uh, to Guy's point rather uh, that, 
what what we've seen uh, is an extraordinary, extraordinary um, divide in America, uh, specifically, uh, which is the place that I think about the most, uh, between uh, the haves and the have-nots. Um, the, the very wealthy have gotten much wealthier, uh, and they've gotten much wealthier as a consequence, predominantly, of, of rising equity markets. So one of the things that's really interesting uh, is that, you know, as, as Guy was picking up on earlier, um, one of the major challenges to any fiat money system is the risk of inflation. Um, and, you know, one Ash, of the things that... Ash, sometimes you only learn about the word fiat when you get into Bitcoin. People don't actually right, right, right. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, 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 fiat money uh, is money that's created by a central bank uh, that isn't uh, backed by any hard asset like gold uh, or Bitcoin. Um, and basically, uh, what that means is that central banks uh, are free, in essence, to control the value of the money. Um, and you know, depending upon your perspective, uh, this is either a good thing or a terrible thing. Um, and so I'll make both arguments. Um, the argument uh, that it is uh, that is a bad thing is that that the risk is that the government can create inflation. Inflation is basically the price of things rising very dramatically, and it effectively becomes a tax on everyone who uses money, which is everyone in the world, uh, presumably, unless you're living uh, off the grid somewhere. Uh, and what that can do is that can effectively, uh, in the worst case, decimate people's ability to save. And that's a, obviously something that sounds very abstract and very financy, but it's really it's really taking work uh, from people who have already done that work. Uh, and 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 that's a that's a that's a uh, for people who have lived uh, through inflation or hyperinflation, if you see what happens uh, in places in the world where there are, uh, is runaway inflation, um, places in Latin America and Africa, we've all heard these stories that are absolutely devastating. Uh, to human beings, Venezuela, um, Argentina at times, Zimbabwe, uh, where people are literally um, pushing wheelbarrows uh, filled with money uh, to, to buy a loaf of bread is the classic example. Uh, Weimar Germany, uh, prior to World War II, the Weimar Republic is one of the examples uh, of this uh, that we hear cited uh, quite frequently as the canonical example in the West of, of devastating hyperinflation and, and the rise of a militarized Germany as a consequence of the of the of the devastation um, that people suffered. Um, the flip side of this, the counter argument um, is, and it's one that I'm sympathetic to, but I'm not wholly on board with for, for reasons that I'll talk about in a moment. Um, the counter argument is, look, things in the United States have actually worked pretty well. The central bank on balance, if we think about prior to 2008, um, uh, has done pretty well since um, since the, the 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 Bretton Woods Agreement, which is the the construction of the the monetary standard that we live under today. Now, one of the things that I think is not a coincidence, and and it'd be interesting to hear a guy talk about this, is that Bitcoin, to me, as I think about it, just as a historical uh, as a historical fact, um, it is very much something that the popularity of which comes out of the the great financial crisis. Central banks. Here in the United States, have dramatically expanded their balance sheets. What that means is that that the Fed uh, has taken on more assets to stimulate the economy. Uh, in layman's terms, the central bank um, that um, that guy is that is the guy is talking about um, losing power to Bitcoin has become far, far, far more powerful. And that's something that that really is uh, that really is a concern. And just just one quick final point: one of the challenges that we have with inflation is that it's 
it's a notoriously difficult thing to measure. So when someone says there is no inflation in the economy, as many traditional, especially Keynesian uh, economists will say, you have to ask, well, it depends what you're looking at, right? We've had tremendous asset price inflation, meaning the price of stocks has increased dramatically. And what that has done uh, is it's made the very wealthiest uh, Americans much richer uh, and everyone else on a relative basis much poorer. Um, and so you have something called the Cantillon effect, uh, which um, which I'm sure Guy would uh, would be uh, great to speak to, uh, is this idea that the closer you are to the spigot, the central bank turning on the tap, printing money, the wealthier you get. And in the real world where where um, where most of us live, um, while the inflation, uh, while while the prices of some goods have decreased dramatically. I just bought seven button-down shirts on Amazon for less than 200 bucks, right? There, there isn't inflation in that sense. But if you think about where young people are right now uh, with this crushing level of student debt, the cost of higher education has absolutely spiraled over the last 20 years, as has the cost of healthcare. In fact, the cost of healthcare has been, uh, in, for, many, for many Americans, for many families, the most devastating, the most devastating aspect of this, um, of of this sort of highly specified inflation. So in my view, at least, I would say that everything is not well. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in Bitcoin. I think of Bitcoin as a kind of digital gold, uh, at very least, and something that has the potential um, to, to act as an anchor uh, for the economy. But there, it is a very complex question, and there are definitely uh, a lot of, uh, of unanswered questions around how it's going to be implemented. Okay, so we should probably talk a little bit about what Bitcoin is, what makes it unique, how it works. Uh, and I've got a list, but I'm going to just give you one each, uh, one at a time. So I'm going to start with you, Guy. Let's talk about the decentralized nature of Bitcoin, what that is, what it means, and why it's important for Bitcoin. Okay. Um, so uh, my favorite analogy is the comparison between the old analog networks and the internet protocol is what fundamentally changed because if you just kind of look at like oh this is how it sends packets it's you know it's just the difference between analog and digital but that's not really the important shift that occurred um digital is just a way to describe how it works not what it does um and the the fundamental difference between the old analog networks is that they were they were run from the center. So like AT&T, you would just plug in your, your dumb device at the edge of the network. But if somebody wanted to provide a service or actually communicate with someone else on that network, you had to connect to AT&T and then to that other person. And any service that was created on the network was at AT&T's discretion. They were the only service provider because they were the owner of the network. And so if I wanted to like host voicemail service, like I had to go pitch it to AT&T and they would have to like roll it out nationwide or in some specific region. There was no, it wasn't like an open market where I could just do whatever I wanted. If AT&T didn't think I should be able to do some specific thing on their network, they would attack me. I mean, this was, this was what, you know, people built those little black boxes and stuff to actually, um, and there was a famous guy who was blind who could actually whistle his way through the network because he could t uh, do the tones for the maintenance lines and he could connect, he could make a phone call to London with no long distance. 
Um, and there was huge stinks and lawsuits and all sorts of charges and stuff because he said, I just have a phone. You know, what, what, why is it? I didn't sign an agreement that said I couldn't whistle into it. <laughs> and so it's like, it's a really fun thing that shows it's not an open network. Somebody else owns it. And what TCPIP fundamentally did was that it made the network simply the collective of all of its participants. And I could do whatever I want. The communication medium was now completely agnostic to the service or the type of communication that I was doing. So now I could host a voicemail or a website or a social media thing and just maybe just with me and my friends. Like I don't I don't have to ask, I don't have to call up the internet and be like, "Hey guys, can I can I make a website happen?" Like I just plug my computer into it and then make it happen. It talks TCP/IP. Um and so all of the innovation of the network was removed from the center and pushed to the edges. Now anyone can simply connect to the internet and build. And suddenly you have this giant open market where anybody can do anything. Anybody can be a content creator. They can start up a YouTube or a Facebook or a streaming service and there's no person to ask. All the devices at the edge now house how the market grows and expands and it becomes its own economy. And in that same way, Bitcoin is that for money. Money has always been an authoritative thing. It's always been from the center. The bank owns the money. You're just logging into the bank and if they wanted to provide a service, you have to ask for the bank. You have to, you have to plug into the bank and get a license and you know the central bank has to like make sure that it's actually viable. It's a completely blacklisted market. You have to have like millions and millions of dollars in some insurance to actually just get access to like their back-end settlement system. It's completely closed off and completely permissioned, and the users just stick on the ends and get whatever the major service providers, the huge billion-dollar banks, actually give them. Whereas Bitcoin turns it into an open, global, permissionless network where people can just connect. And a 12-year-old can write code that creates a financial service. It creates a new wallet. It creates some multi-sig smart contract it allows you to build whatever service you can build the social media equivalent and host it for two people. Like with Sphinx, this, the cool lightning app that I've been can't stop tinkering with recently, they have a thing called multi-tenant where I can just host for my mom and dad and my in-laws and my sister and they can connect to me and I'll have their little lightning wallets. I'm basically providing a not, like a non-custodial financial service for these people. How would I ever get the banking license and the network and get the Visa partnership to do that? And this is just something that I download and install on my computer. Like, it's pushed all the innovation to the edges. And now anyone who wants to build or create a tool of uh, based on the Bitcoin money can just do so. Um, and that is what I think the fundamental shift is. Um, and that's why I think its potential is just as vast as the internet. Yeah. Shall we, should, should, uh, we need to add a bit more to that though. I'll push this one over to Ash because the, another important factor of the decentralized component of Bitcoin is the fact that it can't be switched off by government. Could, should we just elaborate on that bit? Yeah, um, I think that was, that was very well said. Um, you know, Bitcoin has, has solved the problem of trust. Um, you know, there's a, um, a, a historical paradox in computer science called uh, the Byzantine generals problem. 
Uh, and Bitcoin has solved that more efficiently and eloquently uh, than any other technology in the past. And, and you know, precisely um, as Guy was saying, um, the idea is that historically, if I wanted to buy your house, uh, Peter, uh, we went through a bank. We had an intermediary in the middle. Um, this piece of paper that they would print called a bank check, you would accept uh, because you knew that there was a third party uh, that you could trust uh, that was going to make good on the promise to get that to get that money to you. Um, what Bitcoin has done uh, is it solved that problem uh, by using by using a distributed network and all kinds of very cool math and cryptography. Uh, and part of that very cool math and cryptography uh, is uh, that it is very much censorship resistant. It's something that is the network itself. Uh, is, I think, in theory, uh, something that is impossible to shut down. Now, while the underlying network itself is impossible to shut down, uh, whether or not governments uh, can effectively block or restrict the on and off ramps to that network in a way that uh, has a material impact on the price, I think is, is, is very much another question. And I would just say, like, w one other point that, you know, I, I that I sometimes that I sometimes think is important to state about, about central banks is when people refer to central banks as kind of like the they, right? They have this power. Really, in theory, what central banks should be doing is acting on behalf of their citizens and their governments, um, which in the case of the West are elected democracies. So central banks aren't really um, an economic actor uh, the way that JP Morgan is uh, or Goldman Sachs is. Central banks, uh, in theory, uh, their goal is to is to maximize employment, keeping the most people at work, and to create stable prices. Um, in the West, uh, in the United States especially, um, especially prior to the global financial crisis, but for the last 50 years or so, uh, central banks have done a pretty good job of that, as evidenced by, you know, the, the general standard of living that we have enjoyed. Um, you know, prior to 2008, prior to the to Satoshi White Paper, um, most Americans were doing quite well. Uh, in the sense, relative to the to the rest of the world, the United States has been uh, obviously outperforming in a in a massive way. The quality of life in the United States is is better than anyone else anywhere else in the world, uh, and and so you know the idea that that central banks are they that act to exploit um, the the populace for their own benefit to me is I think an, an overstatement. Now I would say it clearly has not been perfect, uh, and especially what we've seen since the global financial crisis. Uh, is that the central bank uh, policy has tended to make this wealth divide, uh, which is something that we hear about all the time, not just as a financial or economic story, but as a social story, uh, it has made that divide clearly worse. The very rich have gotten much richer uh, as a consequence of, of central bank policy. And um, those, are, those, are, those are, are a lot of very complex variables and a lot of very complicated thoughts to square. So whether or not uh, the government can actually shut down the network itself. I think it's reasonable to say that governments probably can severely restrict the on and off ramps. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I suspect my position is somewhere, uh, somewhere, somewhere in between, which is that I don't think Bitcoin is ever going to be outlawed. I don't think it's ever going to be stopped. Um, but I do believe that it's going to be brought into a broader regulatory framework, especially here in uh, in developed markets. Uh, but I think that it's, it has a, the potential to have a very powerful uh, function, which is precisely the function that uh, that guy described so eloquently, uh, which is uh, the uh, ability to um, the ability to the ability to have a, a store of value function 
that is independent uh, of central bank monetary. Okay, back over to you, Guy. You mentioned earlier the 21 million, uh, 21 million Bitcoin. That's a fixed number. Can you explain why that is important? Yes. So when you look at like the history of monetary assets, anything that has been a money, um, and just, just kind of assets in general, uh, there's never really been such thing as perfect scarcity. Uh, something that is something that actually has the attributes of money is incredibly valuable in and of itself because it is so rare. 21, the reason there are 21 million Bitcoin and the reason simultaneously, the reason why it is so difficult to corrupt or shut Bitcoin down is because everyone who runs the software is a full copy of the Bitcoin system. The Bitcoin, the Bitcoin system isn't like a bunch of small parts that make a whole in the sense that if you take away some of it, um, it's no longer it's no longer the entirety of Bitcoin. Every single piece of it, everybody who runs the full node software on their computer are running the entirety top to bottom of the Bitcoin system. They're keeping the entire blockchain, they're doing the entire audit, they're uh, checking every single rule, and they all connect together. And everybody's just making sure that they're all on the exact same page. So that if half the computers on this network just went out one day, Bitcoin basically wouldn't change. Like it would just adjust to the fact that, you know, mining power is less and we would still be connected to the remaining computers. And in fact, technically you could kill all the computers except for one and the Bitcoin system would still be alive in the context that there would be something to connect to on the network. Um, and in that way, everyone is a referee and the rules are completely objective. They're completely unambiguous. Everyone can check it and know for a fact whether or not somebody has broken the rules or corrupted something or written an invalid transaction. So everybody checks everybody else. And that way, no one, everyone knows that no one has cheated. And if someone cheats, they just get evicted. It's just like, if you aren't playing by the rules, you simply aren't on the network. And part of those rules are that there are 21 million Bitcoin. It is the monetary policy of Bitcoin. And to even have a ghost of a chance to change that is you would want every single person running that system, every single person running it on their computer to manually change their own computer to say there's going to be more than 21 million, which just means that they're diluting their own value, uh, their, only, their own share of the network, which obviously the economics don't really put into play unless there's some nuclear scenario where it can't survive otherwise. Um, but I just think it's completely infeasible. Um, but uh, because of that, um, like, like I think Bitcoin is one of the one of the most secure monies, really, that has ever existed. Because you can't you can't really you can't audit all the gold in the world. Like you can you can roughly guess and know because this you know institution said that they mined this amount this year, and this bank says they have this much, and maybe we can pull all this information and try to tally together some sort of amount and, you know, rough guess as to how much has come into existence. But we've never had a perfectly auditable money as a base to work off of. So there's always been murky. There's always been centralized places of trust. 
And Bitcoin basically eliminates that and distributes it to so many points that there's just no, there's no single place to control or shut down. Right, I'm gonna open it up to questions in the last 10 minutes. So if you've got any questions, please ping oh, them in crap. now. That far? Very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just flown through. Yeah, it's flown. Uh, just just one, one more thing, Ash, but try and do it as quickly as and succinctly as you can. Can you explain what Bitcoin mining is? Yeah, um, in layman's terms, Bitcoin mining is the uh, way that the Bitcoin network is secured. Uh, it's the process by which um, the network verifies that the transactions that have taken place uh, are in fact valid. Um, and um, that's, the, that's the really short uh, TLDR version. Okay, good. Okay, so we're going to go to the questions and then we'll work our way back. So there's a lot of questions recently about Bitcoin mining and the impact, the environmental impact. Can we talk about that? Is it true? Is it a myth? Should people be concerned? Uh, who wants to take that? I'll give a real quick version here. Um, I actually, yesterday's episode um, that I released was actually all about this. Um, but uh, in, in a general sense, Bitcoin's role in an environment, like Bitcoin is not taking any, uh, any, a single kilowatt of power from like residential or main street sources. Nick Carter has a brilliant analogy that if you had a, a topographical map with like peaks and troughs of the entire world and the troughs were where energy prices were incredibly low or energy was just lost, wasted or stranded, like it couldn't be used for any other purpose. And then the peaks were where energy was incredibly expensive. Bitcoin is the buyer of last resort for energy. So it's like pouring a bucket of water over that map. It's just going to fill in everywhere energy is lost or wasted. That's why it's capping flared gas at oil wells. That's why it's soaking up hydro and renewable powers for new investments that actually become profitable way before they otherwise would because you don't have to wait to build out infrastructure to get it to the city where your consumers are. The consumer, the Bitcoin miner, can now come to you. It's actually a huge and amazing natural subsidy for new energy technologies and for efficiency and not wasting so much energy that we waste. 67% of the energy we produce is lost. And Bitcoin has the ability to actually soak up a ton of that and just make what we already do way more efficient while incentivizing uh, progress at the same time. I think it's a huge net. Great. Okay. We now have a question from, I'm saying this is KL Richardson. I hope you're still here. Okay. Over to you, Ash. Can you say that Bitcoin is money or is it a money alternative? <laughs> yeah, this is one of the, I think, a question that is, uh, that is really a tempest in a teapot. I think it's really just depends on, on definitions. It's kind of a, it's like a dorm room debate to me. Look, I would say Bitcoin definitely has money like properties. Uh, it is not legal tender in the legal definition uh, that IRS has on their website. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it's just a kind of a fun question to debate. Reality is Bitcoin definitely has money-like properties. Uh, whether or not you call it money um, is, uh, I think, is your choice. <laughs> um, okay. My short answer oh. is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Um, Mead E. Musing has asked, what is the role of blockchain in the crypto market? I'm going to pass this one over to Guy. I hope you're going to give a certain response. If you don't, I'm going to. 
A blockchain is just a series of hashes. It's a database. Um, and a database is a very important part of how you make Bitcoin, but it's a rather old technology. Like a hash chain, which is essentially what the blockchain is, um, uh, was actually kind of a, it was a method of using like the cryptographic tool of hashes. It was kind of developed in like the late 70s, early 80s, I think is when it was like quote unquote formalized. But a blockchain is not a new technology. Um, it's just, it's it's just kind of a hype buzzword for people who I, I you know, with all due respect, don't understand what the real inv innovation of Bitcoin is or what's meaningful about it. And so they latch on the thing that sounded new, and they said this is where the heart of Bitcoin is. When, you know, it's like saying that the the piston is the important thing about the internal combustion engine one. Well, no, it's just like a gear and a thing. It's about what you can do with that piston and the fact that at the end of the at the end of this construction, you have an engine that you can put in a machine and go places like so. Yeah, I think blockchain is just kind of a, a distraction and a misunderstanding. OK, this one is from it's hard to read these names. Jay Lancaster. Jay Lancaster W. <laughs> is there a relationship between inflation and Bitcoin? Pro cons for BTC if inflation does increase. Okay, you can take that one, Ash. Uh, is there a relationship between Bitcoin and inflation? Um, I think the short answer is is probably no, just because of the size of the Bitcoin market. I mean, the, the compared to the compared to the total size of the of the global economy and the U.S. economy, uh, Bitcoin is still uh, is still minuscule. Uh, so is Bitcoin currently influencing inflation in the sense of the aggregate price of goods and services? Probably not. Um, but that's not the same thing as uh, saying, like, for example, I think it is entirely possible uh, that Bitcoin could be a hedge against inflation uh, if you live somewhere in the world uh, where, the, where the local currency is experiencing uh, great inflation uh, and you converted your savings to Bitcoin. You better believe there's a relationship for you uh, because your purchasing power has gotten diluted uh, to a much lower extent um, if you if you hold substantial parts of assets in Bitcoin. But I would also say that's not unique to Bitcoin. If we're being objective about it, if you if you live in Venezuela and you were able to convert to Bitcoin uh, with your savings, you did quite well. But you also did quite well uh, by saving purchasing power uh, if you converted to dollars. Of course, if you converted to Bitcoin, um, you did much better because the price of Bitcoin. Uh, has risen rather dramatically, but I would also say, uh, as a finance person uh, by by background, that the reality is that Bitcoin uh, is a risk asset. It, it has risen dramatically in price. There have also been periods where there have been drawdowns of ninety percent. Um, so there is definitely risk. There is definitely risk uh, in purchasing in purchasing Bitcoin. All right, everyone, this is Norma Jean from the Podbean team. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. There's a couple more questions here. Um, the podcasts from our panelists here are um, Peter McCormick of What Bitcoin Did, Ash Bennington of the Ground Floor Consensus Podcast and Real Vision Network, and Guy Swan of Bitcoin Audible. So we do have a giveaway um, for everybody listening. You uh, can access a membership link for listeners to join Real Vision Crypto, which is free. And the link to that is realvision.com slash crypto. So I'll just pop it here in the chat. Um, and then thank you everyone for joining us for the special live stream panel, Crypto Craze with Peter McCormick of What Bitcoin Did, Ash Bennington of the Ground Floor Consensus Podcast, and Guy Swan of Bitcoin Audible. 
If you join late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this panel on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Thank you again to Peter, Guy, and Ash for joining us. We're going to hop on our next panel now, making your money work for you. Thank you again so much, everyone, here on the live stream. You can just hop over. We'll start the next live stream now. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you.